blessing to to be back. Um, this past week we had a lot of people going to visit family, so it's it's good to see you back here in our church family. It is uh, a privilege to come to God's word. We're coming back to First Samuel. We haven't been there for a while, so I'll try to review a little bit where we have been so far. But our sermon today, uh, it's in 1 Samuel chapter 7. 1 Samuel chapter 7. And um, I titled it, It's a Right Relationship with God. A Right Relationship with God. You have that in your notes there, uh, a little outline and some questions to do at home to kind of help you meditate in a sermon today and and try to bring some application. All right. What is a right relationship with God? What is it and who has it? In 2007, the Barnard Group published a survey which they have conducted in the previous year about self-proclaimed evangelicals. And here are some of the things that they found. 42% of them, um, they're less likely to list their faith in God as the top priority in their life. 27% less likely to contend that the Bible is the totally accurate in all its teachings. 23% less likely to say that their life has been greatly transformed by their faith. While more recently, uh, there was... Actually, this year, there was a new survey um, that a new survey conducted by Ligonier Ministries revealed that theological beliefs of Americans about God, about sin, salvation, heaven, and hell, the church, and the Bible. And here's what they found. More than half of those evangelicals, the 58% of them, believe that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. More than half, 56%, agree that worshiping, God, or, or worshiping alone or with one's family is a valid replacement for regularly attending a church. More than half, 55%, believe that the Holy Spirit is a force but not a personal being. More than half, 55% agree that everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. More than one in four people, 46% disagree that every Christian has an obligation to join a local church. And reading these surveys uh, made me wonder what people really understand what is to have a real relationship with God. What are the parameters that these interviewers, uh, interviewees use to guide their thinking? And what I concluded by my observation is whatever works for them, it's pragmatism, right? We, we talked about this in our last message in 1 Samuel. Whatever agrees with their understanding, that's what they believe and they act upon. Now I want to remind you that as we return to 1 Samuel, that uh, this time in the history of the people of Israel uh, was the time of the judges. In Judges chapter 21, verse 25 says that in those days, there was no king in Israel. 
and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Well, it's very similar to our days, isn't it? Everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. It's my definition of what good relationship with God is. Whatever feels right for me, whatever works for me, that's what it's right. We see the crucial change now in, in the people of Israel. This chapter is it's very important because they will see a change in their hearts. We see a crucial change in the people of Israel when we see a restored relationship with God. So this text will give us a clear guidance to what is a right relationship with God. Right? No more uh, delays. First uh, Samuel chapter 7. And I'm going to start in verse 1, even though we covered it last time. So, And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eliezer, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. From that day that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim, the time was long, and for it was 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the astra from among you, and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him alone, and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the Ashtaroth and served the Lord alone. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. And they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day. And they said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the sons of Israel at Mizpah. Now, when the Philistines heard the sons of Is- that the sons of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel, and when the sons of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the sons of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it in a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, and the Philistines draw near to the battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day against the Philistines and confused them so that they were routed before Israel. The men of Israel went up of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them down as far as below Bathkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set up in between Mizpah and Shan and named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and they did, and, and they did, to his, did not come any more within the border of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistine all the days of Samuel. The cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron even to Gath. Israel was delivered of their territory from the hands of the Philistines. So there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Now Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he is to go annually on a circuit to Bethel, to Gilgal, 
and Mitzpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then his return to his return to Ramah, for his house was there, and there was there he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. Gracious Father, we come before you, before your words, your holy words, asking for instruction. Father, even for those of us who have had a relationship with you for many years, we know our hearts. We know that we are prone to wander. And yet, God, we ask for your help to instruct us on how to have a right relationship with you. Lord, I pray that you would use this passage to encourage us, to challenge us, to correct where we need correction. Pray that you would help us to focus and teach everyone according to your will. In your son's name, amen. All right, so we have been wild that we haven't seen Samuel, but in the last um, time we were here, in verse 1, we see that seven months have passed since the ark of God has gone into um, exile in the territory, in the enemy territory. Then the ark of God was brought back to God's people. But I want to remind you that we saw that Israelites were attempting to manipulate God by bringing the most holy symbol of Yahweh's worship into war. And unfortunately, they experienced a crushing defeat by the Philistines and the battle on Aphak in Ebenezer was the place that, that had the defeat. Um, as a result, thousands lost their lives in battle and the corrupt family of Eli was destroyed as the Lord promised. The ark has been taken captive by the Philistines who believed not only they conquered the Israelites, but they also conquered the God of Israel by bringing the symbol of his presence into their territory. For seven months, the God of the, they experienced a plague which killed thousands and made many others extremely ill with an explained plague. Their leaders, in a pragmatic way, came up with a plan to return to Ark uh, with these milk cows. Or would you remember um, that they went against their own instincts to return to their calves to come, go uphill and bring the ark to the Israelite territory. To the Philistines' surprise, the cows go against their natural, natural instincts into the Israelite territory with the ark. The return of the ark was initially received with joy by the Israelites, but when they didn't treat the symbol of God's presence with proper respect and reverence, which was due, they too experienced the Lord's judgment. We've learned that God has given directives and how he wanted them to have a proper relationship with him, and yet they decided to be pragmatic, to continue to do what was right in their own eyes. They tried to have a relationship with God in their own terms, not on his. This is then where we pick up our narrative. This section contrasts the ministry of Samuel with that of the house of Eli. Eli's corrupt sons, Hophni and Phinehas, had sought to bring victory to Israel by bringing the Lord's ark against the Philistines, like a good luck charm, charm, like a rabbit's foot. But Samuel brought victory to Israel by bringing Israel back to the Lord. In recording the events of this section, the narrator 
is careful to indicate that the mighty deliverance from the Philistines came about only after Israel repented and turned wholeheartedly back to God. So the movement of Israel's heart, not Israel, Yahweh's ark, brought about true freedom from the Israel's oppressors. So as we study this portion, I want you to give you a model on how we can have a right relationship with God, a pattern that is consistent with the rest of the scriptures. In this passage, we find three actions or attitudes that are essential for us to have a right relationship with God. And here they, they are. Repentance, trust, and remembrance. Repentance, trust, and remembrance. Or if you want to use three R words, repentance, reliance, and remembrance. All right, first one, the act of repentance. The act of repentance. In verse 2, it says that from that day, the ark remained in Kiriath-Jerim. The time was long, for it was 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And I call this a sorrow for sin. 20 years separate verse 1 from verse 2, and during this time, the Israelites experienced a change of heart. Instead of mourning because of the heavy blow the Lord dealt on them, so if you look at verse uh, chapter 6, verse 19, it says that the Lord had struck down some of the men in Beth Shemesh, so some of the Israelites died, 70 men added to the 50,000 that died before in the war. But it had struck the people with a great slaughter, and the people mourned because had done that. The Lord had done that. Now, differently, they mourned after the Lord, not because of what the Lord had done, but they're mourning before Him. This this verb uh, mourning is translated sometimes as more, uh, lamented, is mourning or sought after the Lord. It's a rare verb in Hebrew that is rented as lamented, probably conveys the idea of a sorrowful groaning. Unlike the earlier morning in Beth Shemesh, as we saw in 619, this groaning was after the Lord, implying not only a sense of loss, but also in yearning for a restored relationship with God. You see, at times, we, like the Israelites, might mourn not because we feel sorry for having disobeyed God, we grieve over the bad consequences of our sin. Or we grieve over the inability to even continue in our sin. That is not a godly sorrow. Noting Israel's godly sorrow, uh, Samuel sees the opportunity to lead the Israel in a spiritual cleansing reminiscent of those instituted by the great leaders of the past. Jacob, in Genesis chapter 35, Asked his family, if you're following the Lord, you have to put aside the gods, the false gods. Joshua, in the same way in chapter 24, he, he sounds a lot like Samuel. You put away the false gods and you follow God. Who are you going to serve? You and your family. I, my family, I'm going to serve God. How about you? All those words remind of what Samuel is doing here to Israel. Rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the asterisks. Here we see the house of Israel as the people of the covenant community turning to the Lord. All the house of Israel turned to God. All right, letter B here, turning away from false gods and a wholehearted devotion to the Lord. This verse really summarizes um, the ministry ministry of Samuel throughout this period. It perceives the change taking in place in the Israelites' attitudes 
and seeks to consolidate this attitude. In the original Hebrew, the sentence, with all your heart, is the first words in this verse. With all your heart. It reminds us of the first commandment. Deuteronomy 6, 5 says, Love your, the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Here we see Samuel clear directives which teaches us what true repentance means. He does so with imperative verbs to set out three aspects of a genuine commitment to the Lord. All right, here we go. Three R's, three letter uh, R words here. The first one is return. Return with all your heart to the Lord. This first word in Hebrew is a word of change of direction. It conveys the idea of, of a U-turn. When you, someone is going east, but they decide to go west instead, or if someone is going south, they decide to go and, and turn, move north instead. The idea of turning to God is actually uh, this turning away from the idols and changing the direction and pursuing the Lord. Joel chapter 2, uh, verses 12 and 13. How about we read that passage? I think it describes well what this turn and repentance is. Hebrew word means here. Joel chapter 2. Prophet Joel talks about uh, the day of the Lord and how the Lord's going to bring judgment upon the people of Israel. And yet he, chapter 2, he is giving hope, the hope of, of deliverance. He's asking that people of Israel repent because God is gracious and there is still hope for you. And then he uses this word, return or turn. Verse 12, he says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, is slow to anger and abounding in love, loving kindness and relenting of evil. Based on the character of God, he's gracious and compassionate. He asks his people to turn back to him, to change their direction toward him. Now, I want you to pay attention here for the expression, rend your heart and not your garments. Rend in Hebrew, it basically means tear up, and that was their uh, tradition when they wanted to mourn over something, they would uh, turn their clothes apart and then put some sand on their head and some ashes to show grievance. Now, it became a practice that was just a show, just a spectacle to see, oh, look, I'm mourning, I'm lamenting before the Lord, but it was all exterior, exterior worship. It wasn't a heart change. And the Lord is saying, I don't want you to be tearing up your clothes and mourning and, and pretending that you are returning to me, I want you to come with your heart. A change from the inside out, not an ex, an, a mere exterior, uh, exterior change. This passage really perfectly illustrates the true repentance. It goes beyond, um, beyond a vague emotional aspiration and external religious expression to be on, on good terms with God, but rather focus on an inward attitudes and decision to conform to God's way. All right, this was word number one. 
return. The second one is remove. Remove the foreign gods among you. That was the second instruction that Samuel gave. Judges chapter 10, verse 6 and 5 says that this idolatrous worship is precisely what kindled the Lord's anger against them. Baal and Astaroth were Canaanite deities associated with agricultural fertility. Baal was a nickname for the Canaanite deity of the storm and fertility, while Astaroth was the name of the goddess of love, fertility, and war. Together, Baal and Astaroth represented the debased fertility religion of Canaan, whose rituals included um, sacred prostitution, sexual immorality. Now, I want to pause here because I I think this... um, we can visualize idolatry when they have those idols, right? These statues that they bow down before, these um, things. But I want to remind you that is the meaning attached to those statues, those idols, that was important. The problem, it wasn't the, the, the physical idol because they were nothing. You remember how in the past how the Lord, God, the God of Dagon, uh, the guy out of the Philistines, and, and it was just broken down. It was just a piece of stone. It was worth nothing. But in the mind of the people, that's where they got their provisions. So for the people of Israel, they weren't trusting completely in the Lord. They had God, Yahweh, and something else. Baal, you know, we can't guarantee that Yahweh is going to bring us rain, so we've got to find something else. Provision. This is where we're going to have our provision. Oh, we can't control the circumstances. Oh, we've got to seek something else to control it. Oh, we can't have fertility. Um, we wish to have children, but we don't know if God can open the womb. Oh, and Hannah didn't trust the gods, did she? She trusted Yahweh. She didn't go for a, a statue seeking that fertility. So it's the meaning attached to the, to the gods that makes that difference. So before we are too quick to go on the physical eyes, I want to remind you that the New Testament writers saw the danger for us Christians to have a mixed worship to the one true God. Paul cited idolatry as one of the works of the flesh in Galatians 5.20. He exhorted the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 10.14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. In Colossians, he warned the believers. He warned the believers that whenever they indulge in their members, um, in their earthly bodies, in immorality or impurity or passion or evil desire or greed, they are giving into idolatry. Colossians three five, and the apostle John concludes his letter to the believers in Asia with the same warning: "Little children, guard yourselves from idols." 1 John 5.21. So you see, we, have, we all have the modern uh, Baals and Astroths. Whenever other things or people compete with God's worship for us, we have made for ourselves idols and brought them into our hearts. It might not be necessarily a person or material things, but what they offer us, the stability, the comfort, the control, or the pleasure, and so on. True repentance requires us to turn away 
from these things and not let them take place of God in our hearts. Even good things that God made us for, for made to us for our enjoyment, we can put them in the wrong place, in the place of God in our hearts, and compete with the worship. Now, I want to show you in the New Testament how the Lord um, causes transformation. Uh, we recently studied First uh, Thessalonians in our the letters to the Thessalonians in our small groups. So you will remember this passage when I read it. Paul is just reminding how these idolaters, really, in the uh, city of Thessalonica were living as idolaters, worshiping false gods, and they were converted to the Lord. And it says that their testimony of change was so great that in all Greece, I mean, Thessalonica is in the north part of, of Greece, but even south where Athens was and Corinth, where Paul was writing that letter, he heard of that, of their faith. So verse um, 9 from chapter 1 says that, for, them, for they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned. But that word there, turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. So see this, even in the New Testament, we see people turning away from idols and serving God alone. Now, let's move on to our third word here. And I kind of put a, an R there, but in our translation says, um, serve God alone, and he will uh, direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him alone. Redirect. Redirect your hearts to the Lord. That emphasizes the positive aspect of true repentance. The Israelites are challenged to pursue an unshakable resolve toward orienting their lives only highlights a great distinction between true worship of the Lord and the religion of Israel neighbors who thought there was nothing wrong in worshiping multiple deities. That is a difference, difference between true Christianity and false religions. God doesn't claim to, to, to share his throne with other gods. Christianity is a, an exclusive religion. We only worship one God. We can't have God plus something else. That is not um, true religion. That is not true worship with the Lord. Israel neighbors thought, well, we can have Yahweh, but we need to have something else. We need the goddess of fertility. We need the god of the grain. And, and the Israelites adopted that way of living. Well, we can just consolidate those religions. We can have both of the good uh, of both worlds. We can have the goods of both worlds. But whatever we add something else to God that doesn't please him and doesn't help us any better. But if, if Israel returns to the Lord, removed their false idols and redirected their hearts to the one true God, they will again enjoy the benefits of a pure relationship. There's a psalm that says that those who run after other gods, their pains will just multiply. And that's what we see with the people of Israel. Whenever they kept that mixed religion, they continuously 
suffered by the hands of Philistines. So this redirecting of the heart, it, we can translate other ways, saying, keep pursuing the Lord, right? He's encouraging them, turn to him, turn away from the false idols, remove them, but now you keep pursuing him. You persevere and you don't turn. If Israel returns to the Lord, remove their false gods and redirected their hearts to the one true God, they would again enjoy the benefits of a pure relationship with him. He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. This deliverance denotes a rescue by snatching someone out of a situation of distress. In the Old Testament, although this word might be applied to human rescuers, is often used to refer to the supreme deliverer who is the Lord himself. He is the one that saves and um, delivers us. All right, lastly here on this repentance aspect, accepting accountability through public commitment. From verses four to six, we see that there is a change here in their obedience. This was the instructions of Samuel, and they did exactly what Samuel instructed them. So the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the Astrophs and served the Lord alone. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel in Mizpah, and I'll pray for you to the Lord. They gathered at Mizpah and drew water and prayed out before the Lord. All right. So the Israelites put away these things, the Baals, and um, apparently this is a firm decision on the part of Israel, for we do not read of um, Israel worshiping Baals again until the time of Ahab in 1 Kings 16.31, who ruled um, from um, 875 to 853 B.C. So we date Samuel's victory roughly around 1070 B.C., but it appears that Israel did not worship Baal for close to 200 years. This was a, a, a very lasting, long change for the people of Israel. Verse 5, uh, to encourage this national revival of the true religion, Samuel summons an assembly of all Israel, represented by the elders and by many others that were present there as well. In this city called Mitzpah. That's an interesting name. It means guard post or watchtower, shared by several towels, tower, towns. <laughs> um, it's a city north of Jerusalem, and it's you know in the hill country, so it's a, a higher elevation. Uh, it's a city where people can see what is happening there from, from the plains. So Samuel undertakes this to pray to the Lord um, for you. In verse 6, the people were engaged in three acts in worship in Mizpah. First ritual, this says that they drew water and poured out before the Lord. Now, this is not an established practice. You won't read in Leviticus about this pouring of water to the Lord. Um, so some commentators feel a little confused about this. But it seems to represent their total commitment to the Lord. As in a later prophet plea, um, Lamentations 2.19, Jeremiah is saying, pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. So that water might be representing them being broken before God and acknowledging their sin. Perhaps it also indicates a recognition that the Lord, not Baal, is a true source of water and fertility. Second thing they did here as an indication that they were repented, they fasted on that day. It simply 
And fasting is not simply an abstinence of food for, or drink for, for its own sake. Um, for me, it was kind of interesting understanding what uh, fasting meant. You know, I'm, I had people, you know, from Catholic background uh, growing up at home, and they had the Lent and all those things, and it was uh, almost like boastful to do that, like the fasting. Um, and I think one became very clear to me was uh, Paul Washer uh, told this story. You know, imagine that you're going for a camping trip with your family. And you're all excited, and your kids are getting, you know, um, things into the truck. And one of them has an accident and breaks a leg. You, you, you stop everything you're doing. Got to take your child to the hospital. And then the other child comes like, well, what about your camping trip? <laughs> you probably look at them and like, are you crazy? Your brother just broke a leg. We have to take them to the hospital. It's a matter of priority. We can't think about a camping trip. This is more important. So fasting is we're thinking about our relationship with God. We're so focused on that that eating becomes a second priority for us. I'm not going to even, I don't even think about this because this is so much heavy on my heart and in my mind that this is what I'm going to give priority to. So they fasted on that day. They were eager to have their relationship restored with the Lord. Lastly, um, the people make a confession. People make a confession. If you read here the verse, uh, the end of verse 5, they said there, we have sinned against the Lord. They didn't say, if we sinned against you, Lord, would you forgive us? They said, we have sinned. This is what we have done. We're not denying it. Proverbs 28, 13, I think it summarizes all of this repentance, this act of repentance that we've been talking about here. How about we take a look in there? Proverbs 28, verse 13. It says, He who conceals his transgression will not prosper. I mean, we think about these past 20 years of Israel, we have seen them not prospering at all. Trying to manipulate God, trying to do things their own way. They didn't prosper. They're just hiding their sin and just piling up more and more. And then we, hear, we read here, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. There is the confession element there, and the forsaking is really the changing of direction. You're living behind all these idols, and you're turning the direction to the Lord. Then you will find compassion from God. So that leads us um, to the next verses, the act of trust. Not long after this conversion, this turning to God from the Israelites, we see that they already start facing trouble. Now when the Philistines heard the sons of Israel had gathered a misprep, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. So they heard a commotion, and fearing that such gathering was for adversarial purposes, the lords of the Philistines went up the coastal plain, and they, they thought, you know, Israel is coming, preparing for war, we should prepare to fight them. They needed to suppress their rebellion. 
So although Israel has genuinely turned to the Lord, news of the approaching Philistines army caused them to become afraid. They remember how they have previously suffered at the hand of the Philistines. So still fearful they are, they do not flee. It seems that we are set to fate. Um, it, it always like this, isn't it? When we decide to become serious with our relation, in our relationship with God, it seems that we're set to face opposition. Every time we decide to be serious with God, it seems like, oh, the things are getting harder and harder. Having a close relationship with God does not exempt us from trouble. This was our first point here. It does not exempt us from trouble. In fact, it might seem sometimes that it's not always true. Sometimes we exaggerate things. But it might seem sometimes that they tend to increase. The Apostle Paul said that indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The Lord Jesus encourages his followers, saying in John 16, these things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. You have difficulties. But take courage. I have overcome the world. I think this is an aspect of our relationship with God that we, we, we tend to neglect. You know, yes, we do have to repent from our sins, confess, and come to God. But we will face difficulties in this world, but we have to put our trust in him. We trust him to salvation, for salvation, and we keep trusting him when we face trouble. Second part here in verse 8, they asked Samuel to not, in, not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. The Israelites considered themselves to be unworthy and incapable of approaching God directly in prayer, but the Philistine advance impels them to implore Samuel to pray on their behalf. Their request acknowledges their need for God's power to save them from the dominion of their enemies. And, and this cry out goes beyond praying. It's, it's a prayer of desperation. God, we're so desperate for you. We need you. And then lastly, from verses 9 to, through 11, we can trust God to hear our prayers. Hear what happens here. When Samuel offered that sacrifice of that lamb and he was offering the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near into battle to Israel, but the Lord thunder. Um, a few times in the scripture, you know, there's an army prepared for battle, and then kaboom! God is just thundering from heaven, and I hope I, I woke some of you up. <laughs> but it, it put people into confusion. I mean, I remember as a little kid being horrified of thunders. I, you know, running to my mom's bed, and eventually they're like, no, you've got to stay in your bedroom. You can't come at anymore. But it, it threw them into a panic. Um, this was common, in, in the, even if you read in the ancient Near East um, writings of their religions on how they associated um, nature's events to divinities getting involved into war. So they knew something was up, and it wasn't the people of Israel. The God of Israel was interfering with that war. It was his war now, because they were in God's side. 
the predicament of the Israelites who had gathered not for war, but for religious uh, renewal is vividly portrayed. Even as Samuel is offering the sacrifice, the Philistines launch their attack, but the desperate situation is dramatically reversed as the Lord raises a mighty thunderstorm. It causes a turmoil among, amongst the enemies that confuse them, express this panic loss of morale and consequent chaos leading to unsuccessful fighting. They start fighting against each other. Now, I want you to remind you of Hannah's words. Remember her, her song? She said, it's almost like prophetic what she said, chapter 2, verse 10. If you feel, turn a few pages, you'll read that. What did she say? Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them, he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And they were defeated before Israel. It, it's exactly the same words that they were routed, right? It says that they were routed before Israel. In the past, what happened? Israel was routed before the Philistines. But now that Israel is on God's side and is having a right relationship with the Lord, they experience that. And they go, and then the people of Israel take the opportunity of that and pursue them as far as Beth Car. We imagine that is a uh, route downhill um, that they took. Now, um, as we read this, I, I think, I don't know about you, but it, it might seem a little too simple, too easy. Right? Well, they did this, they obeyed God. It gives an impression that God always answers us with immediate victory. Our, but from our personal experience, like other experiences of Israel often stands in tension with this story, there are times when faithful Christians pray for healing and deliverance, and that does not come. There are times when God seems utterly and inexplicably silent. It is not always that repentance plus trust equals deliverance. In fact, out of biblical passages, we see the formula doesn't hold true. Read Job or Ecclesiastes. And you have a pessimistic view of being faithful to God. So a responsible interpretation of this text considers the larger picture. The larger picture teaches us that suffering is part of life. For those of you who were here this morning, we talked about depression, right? And part of our lives is struggling and having um, suffering. It's part of life. But God is present with us, even in the midst of our suffering, and can work with us to bring a spiritual growth, even from trials and troubles, Romans 8.28. Even when God does not answer with thunder, we can still hold to the author's central belief. Those who serve God with all their hearts can trust him with their lives. Note that the prayer for Samuel, uh, they, they, pray, they asked Samuel to pray. They said, do not cease to cry out to the Lord for our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. They didn't say that he should save us, that he will deliver us. They said that he may. He might save us or he might not but we will still declare our confidence in him. If the deliverance will happen from the trial or in the trial, he is with us and he will be found. 
few passages here um, encourages us. I'll read Jeremiah 29, 12 to 13. And in the meantime, you can open your Bibles to Matthew 7. Matthew 7. In the midst of trials and, and difficulties in the Christian life, he encourages us to trust him, to seek him with all our hearts. And guess what? He listens. He hears us. Jeremiah 29, 12 to 13. He says, Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me, and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. This was a prophecy that Jeremiah was given to the people that in the future, they would, all the Israel would come back to the Lord. And then we have Matthew 7. Jesus is saying, really, almost word for word, what was prophesied in the past. He says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks will be opened. And what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will he give you a stone? Or if asks for fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, we are evil. We're sinners to the core. This is our nature. But yet, we being evil, we know how to, do, to give good gifts to our children. How much more your, your Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask him? We can trust him. It might not be the result that we expected, the end of that trial, the end of that suffering, even through depression. It might not look like what we, what we expected, but we can be sure that we can trust him through it. He is with us. He does not deny us good things. We need to trust him. All right, lastly, a third action for those who want to have a right relationship with God is the act of remembering. The act of remembering. From verses 12 to 17, we read here that Samuel took a stone and sat between Mitzvah and Shen and named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far, the Lord has helped us. This uh, Ebenezer literally in Hebrew means a stone of help. It's the same name of the more northerly site in chapter, mentioned in chapter 4-1 when they lost the battle, remember, to the, the Philistines. There Israel, through their folly, had suffered a dismal defeat. But now Samuel uses the name to its fullest sense in order to celebrate what has been achieved with divine help. Uh, that expression, thus far, can be translated either until now as a temporal expression or as a ge geographical, as far as here, at this, at this place here, he has delivered us. Either way, it's reminding the people to display continuing, continuing loyalty, to God, loyalty to God so that his help might be available in their lives. So the closing verses of these texts emphasize the importance of memory and encourages us to use uh, aids of remembering. So these 
rock, the stone of help um, that many others have done. You know, they raise a stone and they put that as a memorial device uh, to remind them of um, the Lord's dealings with them. And um, I believe that we tend to avoid sometimes, right, making symbols. We fear like, oh, this is too mystical, this water with this thing. And, and we kind of shun a lot of these memorial devices. But the New Testament has some of them, symbols to help us to remember spiritual realities. For example, the water baptism for the believers. It's a, be- a beautiful picture of a death to sin when the person emerges into the water like they're dying to sin and they come out of the water. They were raised with Christ for a new life. What is that? The symbolism. It's an elementary mind of our spiritual reality that God has done something in our lives. And we have also the, the Lord's Supper. Once a month, we, we come to the Lord's table and we take the bread and we drink of the cup. What is that? It's a memorial device reminds us what the Lord has done, how his body was crushed for us, how he, through his death we were given life, the bread is life, and how his blood was poured out like that blood. His blood was poured out and shed on our behalf and gave us life, and we celebrate together as a family, and we are eager for the day that we're going to celebrate that supper with the Lord again when he comes back. So, God does give us these memory devices to help us to remember things. We need memory devices because we're forgetful people, aren't we? I can say that we men are particularly forgetful. We forget anniversary dates. We forget family birthdays, important events, important people that we need to call. It's not uncommon when I'm video calling my parents in Brazil that I'm, I'm reminded of certain important events in our family that I'm like, oh boy, I forgot that. We know how important it is for relationships to grow that we take good care to value the memories, right? In any relationship, there's forgiveness involved, there's trust. I mean, it's interesting when I'm counseling couples and I ask, what, are, what do you think is important in a relationship? Oh, trust. I'm like, well, that's important in our relationship with God too. It's also important that we remember certain things, that we have certain uh, memories. Particularly when it comes to our relationship with God, we are forgetful people. We need to be reminded. We forget how much we have been forgiven. We forget how much we need God. We forget his grace, his mercy toward us. Therefore, we want to keep a healthy relationship with God. We make sure to remember certain truths about our life with God. I can recall one of these great reminders. Um, A gift was given to me um, by a friend at a time in my graduation. This was um, a bracelet, still have it, in 2018. And then inside has the date engraved, May 6th of 2018, the day of my graduation. And on the bracelet was one of my favorite verses, um, Lamentation 3.25, it says, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. And what a truth to be reminded of. I I recall the difficult times I had in school, financial problems, relationship issues, difficulties with certain classes, problems with roommates, and 
all the times that the Lord was good through it all. Not long, not long after graduation, I took another master's degree. Talk about enjoying school pain, huh? Um, but I remember looking at this bracelet again and again and thinking, the good God who helped me with that first degree is going to help me through this as well. And I believe when Samuel had that stone put in mind, he wanted to remind them, see what your foolishness had led you. See how bad you have fallen at Ebenezer. But God was a stone of help when you turned to him. We need those devices to remind us. I mean, if you keep reading the rest of the chapter, we see a a different way of, of reminding is that Samuel he had this circuit where he would go to city from city preaching and, and teaching and judging the people of Israel. He's kind of this important character now that he's the last of the judges and he's the first of the prophets. Really, in Jeremiah, he's called in with the prophets. And even in the book of um, uh, Hebrews, he's mentioned also as one of the prophets. So um, Samuel has this important um, all these different roles that he has now as a priest, as a prophet, and as a judge. And he's going to be the one that anoints the king, right? The, the first king of Israel and the, the king that comes from the tribe of Judah. So now, mind you, at the end here, he says that he, then he would do all of this, judging Israel for a long time. Then he would return to where? To Ramah, verse 17, for his house was there. And there he judged Israel, and he built an altar there. I was reading some commentators, and they say here that verses 17, 15 to 17 reinforce the importance of remembering, but in another way. These verses re- describe Samuel's judicial activity, traveling a circuit between the main cities in the heart of the Holy Land. The section closes with a reminder that he would come back to his home. Samuel never forgot that his roots were in Ramah and in the simple piety that he had learned from his mother Hannah and from his father O'Connor. When the sanctuary, you remember the sanctuary in Shiloh was abandoned, probably destroyed by the Philistines after the war, Samuel built an altar. He built a worship place in Ramah. When he was not traveling um, and, and judging around the nation, that was where he was found. Samuel's return to his physical home points us to the importance of having a central place for worship, a spiritual home, so to speak, a place to which we can return on a regular basis for worship, rest and and fellowship with those of the family of God. Many aspects of life compete with our attention and lead to spiritual distraction. Returning to our spiritual home helps us to recenter our values and commitments. One characteristic of our generations is a lack of loyalty to institutions, a a preference for going it alone rather than being a joiner. One of the greatest challenges of today's church is to show the vital importance of discovering a spiritual home and returning to it on a regular basis. Oh, that we would be more often to heed these spiritual reminders from the Lord so that we might not forget. The New Testament is full of illustrations of spiritual forgetfulness. James says that we sometimes can be forgetful hearers. 
James 1.25, Hebrews exhorts us not to forget to show hospitality to strangers. We shouldn't neglect doing good and sharing with others. Hebrews 13, verses 2 and 6. And then Hebrews 10.25 exhorts us not to forget our assembly, our coming together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another all the more that you see the days drawing near. Beloved, we need these reminders. We would do well to use these little Ebenezers in our relationship with God to remember what God has done in us and what he still would do. Um, I have this song, Come Thou Fountain of Every Blessing, probably a very dear song for many of us, right? Written by Robert, uh, Robert Robinson in 1758. No song, but it speaks true even today. And he talks about this imagery of, of Ebenezer, that Samuel raised an Ebenezer, and he makes it up with the New Testament, uh, comparing with the deliverance that we have in Christ. So as Samuel declared that Yahweh had delivered Israel, so the songwriter sees Jesus as his stone of help that brings salvation to Christians. And then he, he says, here I raise my Ebenezer. Hither by thy help I come. Thus far the Lord has brought us. And I hope I die good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when I was a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. May we praise God for his Ebenezer. He has brought us this far. I want to encourage you to seek a true relationship with God that involves repentance, trust, and remembrance. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we know that our hearts are prone to wonder, as the songwriter said, Lord. Lord, we need thee. We need to take our hearts captives to set aside our distractions, to set aside the things that compete in our hearts for you. Our desire for control and wanting things our way. Lord, we need to have things your way. Because even when we face trials, we have a rock that we can run to. We have a refuge that we can find rest and put all our trust that you do not disappoint us. Father, help us to be reminded of all your graces so that we might praise you daily. Pray that you would bless about bless this week, maybe a, a week of worship, and even as we ponder in these truths that we learned today, may we bring praise and honor and glory that only you deserve. In your son's holy name, amen.